August 24, 1814, fresh from their resounding victory at Bladensburg, Maryland, 4,500 battle-hardened British troops under the command of Major Robert Ross and Rear Admiral George Coburn attacked the city of Washington and set the Capitol building ablaze, along with the Treasury, the War Department, and the Library of Congress. Wooden floors, rafters, and books roar in a glowing bonfire of American defeat. James Madison, our fourth president, had left the city a few days earlier to meet with his generals in the field. His wife, First Lady Dolly Madison, would soon follow. When the British march on the executive mansion, they set about looting and ransacking the place. Reportedly, some British soldiers find a meal prepared in the kitchen and sit down to eat it in the executive dining room off the president's plates before then burning down the house for dessert. The fires in Washington rage through the night until they are extinguished by a severe and timely storm. In the aftermath, government buildings are charred and smoldering ruins. Furnishings and records are destroyed. The federal city is left a shambles. It's a daunting setback for a still young nation. Three days later, with the British forces departed, it falls to James Madison to return to Washington, working to stiffen the nation's flagging resolve in the face of an uncertain war, carrying on the conflict to somehow protect American sovereignty and refuel our founding spirit. No government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls and government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men, over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place oblige it to control itself. And hello again, it's Don Wildman with another episode of American History Hit and the next in our series on the U.S. presidencies, this time the fourth president, the man who served two terms from 1809 to 1817, coming after Thomas Jefferson and right before James Monroe. It's James Madison of Virginia, founding father, revolutionary, framer of the U.S. Constitution, indeed traditionally credited as the carpenter who nailed the studs together and made the walls stand strong. James Madison, father of the Constitution, would serve eight years in a still new executive mansion that stood like a lonely manor house in a capital city carved from marshy wilderness. Third president to do so. But it would be during his presidency that Americans would be horrified to discover the fragile vulnerability of that building and that capital city. Madison would be the only president ever to flee from it in a tragic moment of disgrace and humility that would become a pivot point, not only for his presidency, but for the whole history of the United States. Madison was a thoughtful, deeply intelligent man, highly flexible in his thinking, 
and determined in his will to make America work as an ongoing experiment, in a laboratory very much of his own making. He was James Madison, and today we are guided in this conversation by constitutional scholar, historian, professor, author, Kevin Constantine Gutzman, whose books include The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution and Who Killed the Constitution. Dr. Gutzman, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Happy to be here. As I mentioned, today we are discussing one of the framers. I call him a carpenter. Might be better to say contractor. I mean, nonetheless, we begin our dialogue after he's completed all of that. But I will say anecdotally, which applies to all the first five presidencies, how incredible it must have been to be the executive in charge, to see the manual they wrote. I, I guess this doesn't apply to Jefferson so much, but for Madison in particular, this must have been quite the journey. Well, I think he had a particular idea of what the chief executive's office was about that was at variance with the Federalists, mm -hmm. that of George Washington and John Adams. So, for example, in 1812, famously, he sent a message to Congress describing the foreign policy juncture at which the new country had arrived. And the climax of that message was, and so we find ourselves in a situation in which the United Kingdom is at war with the United States, but the United States are not at war with the United Kingdom. And often people will say, well, this is Madison's war message. It's very common for people in shorthand to say that he declared war on the British, which, of course, a president mm -hmm. can't do. But he didn't even call on Congress to declare war on the British. He said, essentially, you'll want to think what to do about this. But wow. he thought the executive's position was executive, that it had far less role in policymaking than we have become accustomed to. Mm -hmm. So even at that juncture, he still thought this is for Congress to decide. My role is to lay out the facts for them and give them more or less my opinion. To that point, Madison is a Democratic Republican. He has served in Thomas Jefferson's cabinet as Secretary of State, had much to do with the Louisiana Purchase, spent time and energy navigating the tricky oceanic waters of European rivalry. He is seeing the dramatic reshaping of France's own revolution. What are his priorities as he is inaugurated? March 1809. What distinguishes him from Jefferson, would you say? Oh, boy, I don't think that there really was a great distinction between his program and Jefferson's. Mm. I actually think that he, Jefferson, and Monroe followed more or less the same program as Jefferson had laid out in his first inaugural address for 24 consecutive years. And what that meant was, first of all, scrimping on federal expenditure. So when Jefferson came into the chief executive's office, he chose Al Albert Gallatin to be his treasury secretary, and Gallatin had established his very prominent place in the Republican Party as the chief opponent of naval spending in Congress. So Jefferson had the idea, we're going to not only balance the budget, we're going to pay off the debt. And Gallatin laid out a plan for paying off the debt, which ultimately came to fruition during Andrew Jackson's administration. Sometimes if you scratch a libertarian, what do you think about Andrew Jackson? You're apt to get the answer, well, he, he paid off the debt. That, that's significant. Mm. But what people often omit is, he paid off the debt on the exact day that Gallatin's program called for doing that. Interesting. And what happened in the Madison administration was that this ideological fixation on paying off the debt, regardless of the circumstances, found the United States declaring war on the United Kingdom, which had a very large professional experienced army that had been fighting Napoleon in Europe for years and years. It had the biggest navy in the world. And one opponent of the Declaration of War of 1812 responded by saying, you're going to declare war on the United Kingdom? You have no men. 
You have no <laughs> ships. You have no money, which was true. And I think the chief fault one can find in Madison's entire presidency is that rather than recommending to Congress before he recommended, more or less, that it declare war on Britain, rather than recommending that Congress make some kind of preparation for this, take the Navy out of dry dock, essentially, find some professional generals, build up the military somehow, at least establish a tax system that might have paid for a war, Madison went straight to, here's the situation, and essentially dared Congress to declare war on the United Kingdom. Wow. So America went into the War of 1812 without having made any preparation, in fact, with having had a program of being unprepared. So we see George Washington, of course, the first president, famously had said, if you want to avoid war, prepare for it. And the Jeffersonian position seems to have been, if you don't want to have a war, don't prepare for it. Well, that <laughs> didn't work out because the time came, they decided to declare war. They made no preparation. And of course, the end result was a foreign army marched into Washington, burned down the Capitol, the White House, the War Department, State Department, Treasury Department. This was not surprising. It was entirely predictable. In fact, it was predicted. So my own feeling is, and this is essentially the message one gets from my book on Madison, that this is by far the low point of Madison's career. I think if he had never been president, we'd have a higher opinion of it. Hmm. It seems to be a pattern with American military endeavors right up to and including World War II. You know, a complete lack of military preparation, you know, followed by huge effort to get that, you know, and then finally getting it together in the middle of the war, it seems like, right? right. The War of 1812 will obviously characterize Madison's presidency, but he's in office for two years before that war is declared on June 1st, 1812. The nation he inherits from his political ally is not in the best condition at the outset. How is the U.S. doing in 1809? What are the domestic challenges? Well, Famously, during the Jefferson administration, the federal government undertook the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson and Madison had sent negotiators to France to try to purchase New Orleans from the French. And Jefferson famously said, there is on the map exactly one spot, the possessor of which must be an enemy of the United States, and that is New Orleans. And the reason was that in those days, 90% of Americans were farmers in some capacity. And if you lived west of the Appalachians, whether you were in the Midwest or in the South, you were growing crops for export and they had to go out through the port of New Orleans into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson probably run about three times the amount of money they'd been told they could spend, which was more than the annual federal budget. And of course, they were agreeing to just a gigantic expanse. What this all meant was that the Republicans were going to be invincible. It was not going to matter what they did. For example, they could declare a feckless war on Britain and get the capital burned down. And they were still, when James Monroe was reelected in 1820, he got all but one electoral vote. And the one elector who voted against him was a fellow Republican. There was not a single <laughs> Federalist in the Electoral College in 1820. Yeah. And this was because of the Louisiana Purchase. So on one hand, we have to, I think, obviously, we have to criticize these people for their disastrous, just completely ill-considered War of 1812. On the other hand, it was their diplomatic effort that led to the Louisiana Purchase and made America a great nation. In fact, as soon as that happened, people realized, well, the United States is going to be a great power. One day it'll rank with France and Britain and Russia, right, which nobody could have expected before. And that's the main thing to know about this period. They could do essentially whatever silly thing they wanted to do, like declaring war on the British without making any preparation, and still end up with the Federalist Party ceasing to exist. 
the economy as a result of this, there's a lot of debt. I mean, basically, this is a brand new day for America. It's a lot of debt to carry with an administration that doesn't like debt. We're talking about $15 million in those days. That is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. No, no, it's more than that, actually. The federal government's annual budget was a few million dollars. So $15 million was far more than the annual federal budget. That's amazing. It was just a gigantic amount of money. Yeah. But look what they were buying. I know, no. It's a real estate deal. It's too sweet to say no to. The reason we go to war has much to do with the failed trade embargo, which was begun under Jefferson. Am I right? That has a lot to do with what's happening out there in the Atlantic Ocean. What they were in the habit of doing, especially Jefferson and Madison, who were the chief policymakers both in the Jefferson administration and then in the Madison administration, was letting the wish be father to the thought. So they had the idea that it would be nice not to have to spend money on the military. Therefore, their conclusion was, we don't need to spend money on the military. But they had this ideological policy. It was not based on kind of level-headed appraisal of the needs of the country. It started with a wish that the government didn't have to tax and then followed through to, okay, well, it would be desirable not to have any taxes at all, so let's not have any taxes at all. Hmm. So what was going on was that the British, of course, and the French were in this just gargantuan world war with each other, and whichever one of them won was going to eliminate the other one's hmm. regime. It was to the death. Napoleon's France had a population of about 25 million people, uh, old and young, male and female, and 3 million of them were in the army. Wow. So imagine 12% of the United States population today being in the Army or the <laughs> Navy or the Marines, right? That would be 40 million people. It's just absurd. <laughs> and besides that, Napoleon was the greatest military genius since maybe Alexander, since Caesar, one of those mm -hmm. ancient fellows. So on one hand, the British had this fellow with unlimited ambition for conquest, and he wanted to wipe them out. And it, once he did, he would completely control Europe. Mm -hmm. And in this context, the Federalists under Adam or during the Adams administration had decided, well, we need to have something of a navy. We need to have some kind of tax structure to support it. And Gallatin and Congress had said, no, we can't possibly compete even with Spain, let alone with France or Britain in this realm. And so we shouldn't even try. And that was the ground on which Jefferson decided, well, this fellow ought to be Treasury Secretary. And so Gallatin ended up being the longest serving major cabinet officer in American history. He was Treasury Secretary for more than 11 years. That is through the entire Jefferson administration of two terms. And then virtually through the first term of Madison's administration. And their position was, we aren't going to have significant warships. We're not going to have prepared officer corps for the army. They Essentially, it was disarmament. And the alternative to this, they thought, could be, as you said, economic coercion. Okay, so famously, Tom Paine had said that Europeans would be dependent on American foodstuffs as long as Europe was in the habit of eating. And so these fellows decided, well, okay, we're going to try that out. We're going to use economic coercion in lieu of military power and international affairs. And it turned out it didn't work. It didn't work at all. Why were they coercing them? What was the purpose of the coercion? Napoleon had essentially, by the height of his empire during the Jefferson administration and the Madison administration, military control of the whole continent of Europe. 
And on the other hand, the British had won a major naval battle against the combined French and Spanish fleets off the Spanish city of Trafalgar in southwestern Spain. And that meant that the British had complete control of all the world's oceans. And the British were in the habit of policing their policy of not allowing the United States to trade between the U.S. and Western European colonies, that is Western Hemisphere European colonies on one hand, and Europe on the other, because this would be strengthening Napoleon. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would be. And the Americans decided, well, okay, rather than build up the Navy and send naval vessels out to defend American shipping, even against British interdiction, what we'll do is we'll use the possibility of cutting off trade in American agricultural products with the British and see whether that'll make them change their policy. Now, one reason why they might have thought this was a realistic idea was that before the revolution, there had been repeated instances in which Britain had adopted some new policy that the colonists found offensive. The colonists waged some kind of boycott or another. The British parliament then repealed the offending policy and the cycle repeated itself. That went on four or five times uh, during what's called the imperial crisis before the Declaration of Independence. So those were, of course, formative events in the intellectual lives of Jefferson and Madison. And they thought, well, we can just reprise this. In fact, we're better situated to do that now than we were then, because now we have the federal government. Then we were disparate colonies of the Mm. British Empire, and we still managed to coerce them economically into it rescinding some of the offending policies in the 1770s and 80s. So we'll try that now. And as we were saying a few minutes ago, it proved to be a total debacle. The British could not allow the Americans to trade between European colonies in the Western Hemisphere and France. Because France, if Napoleon could get three hours of the English Channel being cleared, he would conquer (laughs) England. And so the British thought they had to prevent any kind of naval success for the the French. They had to prevent trade between the French and European colonies in the West. And so they were not going to change this policy. It didn't matter how long Americans Mm. went without trading with Europe or trading with the British. This was just impossible. And I think, again, it was guided by ideology. It was not based on a practical appraisal of the situation. It was not based on experience. It was a new idea. And they had the idea that it was an experiment. You can tell, I think, that this was irresponsible. Right. There was no ground for expecting this to work. And yet they just decided, well, this will work. Why will it work? Well, because we want it to work. So it's bound to work. But it did not. How much was Madison playing one superpower against the other? I mean, was this a kind of brinksmanship? You know, whoever would be the best trade partner wins, but it doesn't work out that way. Well, there was no way that you were going to have France as a trade partner because, again, Britain completely controlled the oceans. Mm, Okay. So the only trade there could be between the United States or anybody else in the Western Hemisphere and the mainland of Europe was trade that the British decided to allow or some scattered smuggling, which was not going to be of any uh, magnitude. So we can see, you know, in retrospect, people like Jefferson, Madison, Gallatin, they thought America's situation was a novel one in the world. It was based on implementing reforms that had been thought to be impracticable in Europe, like, for example, having a Republican government. There'd never been a Mm -hmm. long-lasting major republic since the Romans. So they thought, well, as long as we're in the habit of vindicating ideas that had been thought disproven, why not try this? (laughs) And yeah, it was a total debacle. There was nothing you could say about it that was positive. It did not work. 
We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. And is narrated by me, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from my TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. On Mysteries at the Museum, I travel across the U.S. to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that evolved into one of the most popular toys for kids. Objects carry a lot of power. They tell a story about a person, a place, or a time in history. And sometimes they just look like ordinary household objects. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. I think you'll like this podcast because it's telling every kind of American story through fascinating historical objects. So listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. One of the features of Madison's presidency will be his flexibility, his change of direction. Is that fair to say he's a very good at rethinking a situation? Well, that war message does amount to admission that the economic coercion idea has failed. Right. But he has hawks who are calling for war. Yes. Well, actually, there's a, an episode in 1807, which is remembered now as the Chesapeake Leopard Incident, in which a British warship, HMS Leopard, off the coast of Virginia, in fact, where people standing on the shore of Virginia could see this happening, where a British ship stopped an American warship that was headed down Chesapeake Bay out Hampton Roads into the Atlantic. And eventually, when the attempt to flag down this American ship failed, the British fired on the Leopard, completely destroyed its rigging, killed and wounded several American sailors. And Americans had the idea that this was just totally offensive. Jefferson said at the time, you know, if I wanted, I could have a war now. Congress would declare war. But his idea was, we haven't tried this experiment well enough yet, so we're not going to do that. And even in the wake of the Chesapeake Leopard incident, 
There was not a campaign even of establishing coastal defenses or maybe buying new warships or trying to negotiate somehow with the British. Nothing. Nothing changed. Jefferson's policymaking process is generally understood as having consisted of having cabinet meetings at which he, Gallatin, and Madison were the chief policy formulators. They essentially, we think, formulated the main policies of the Jefferson administration together, and they did not change their minds. They were, again, I think it was completely ideological. It was not based on reality, observation, ongoing results. So in general, of course, James Madison had a spectacularly important political career. He's one of the handful of most important people in American history, but I don't think there's any doubt that his presidency was the low point. Mm. It's an exception. I'd say virtually all of the rest of it was enormously successful, but then you came to the presidency and it was just this debacle. Right. The fact that he continued this foreign policy and then more or less taunted Congress into declaring war without first saying, okay, what we need to do is we need to call American ships home. We need to build up the Navy. I'm going to have another message for you later, but you know what I'm hinting at? So nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing like that happened. We had forces that were mostly militia and as you say, hardly a Navy. It's incredible that they decide to go to war. How much is the phrase, you know, second war of independence true or not? And did Madison feel that way about this? In some sense, it is true. And the reason it's true has to do with traditional, or I guess I should say almost universal pre-American revolution ideas of national obligations. Hmm. So for example, if your mother were pregnant in London in 1750, and she got onto a ship while she was in labor, and she made her way to France and then had you, and you lived 90 years and died in France and were buried in France. The British government's position was that was a British grave, right? You could not cease to be British. You could not say, I am no longer British, I'm now French. That was impossible. And the American Revolution. One of the ideas underlying the American Revolution was people have an obligation to the society to which they decide to have an obligation. Mm -hmm. So if you're an American, well, you're born in America, you have obligations. But if you thought, I'd rather be a Mexican and the Mexicans would have you, you could move to Mexico and the American government's position would be that man is now a Mexican. But this was impossible at the time of the American Revolution. And why is this relevant to the War of 1812? The reason it's relevant is the British still thought it was impossible. So while these problems were going on between Britain and Napoleonic France, one thing that was going on that we mentioned before was that the British were dominant at sea. And if you were a Briton young man, you would rather avoid being in the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy had very, very harsh discipline based chiefly on whipping. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate student, the first research paper I ever wrote in college was about life in the British military in the 18th century. And I think, Gutsman, that's a pretty nerdy (laughs) topic. But anyway, one thing I learned was if you were a careerist in the Royal Navy in the 18th or 19th century, you would have received on average hundreds and hundreds of lashes Mm. in your career. This was the way they disciplined people. And the Americans' ideas about national obligation extended so far as to say, if you were a British sailor and you got off the boat in Canada and you walked into New Hampshire and said, I want to be an American, fine, you could do that. 
But the British would never concede that you had ceased to be a, a sailor in the Royal Navy. Right. right. You're now a deserter. That's their opinion. So over time, there had come to be a very large share of the American merchant marine that were actually Britons. Mm -hmm. And the British repeatedly contacted the American government about this. And they adopted a policy called impressment where they would, as I was describing before in that case of the Chesapeake and right. the Leopard, they would stop American ships at sea. They would interrogate the sailors. If the British naval officer on the spot determined that you were British, he would right there force you into the Royal Navy. You would that moment become a member of his crew. There were cases in which they were mistaken. In fact, one of the most famous cases involved a man from Danbury, Connecticut, where my university is mm -hmm. located. This was a nationally famous case of a man whose family had been in Connecticut for four generations. And he was impressed into the Royal Navy because a British naval officer decided he sounded like a Briton and he looked like a Briton. And he probably was. During the Jefferson administration, Secretary Gallatin made a report to President Jefferson about this phenomenon. And he determined that like 20% of sailors on American ships were British. So the British could not cease to impress people. They had to keep doing this. A way around it would have been for the Americans to find some kind of method for weeding out or rooting out Britons from our own merchant marine and sending them back to the British. Although Gallatin suggested doing that, Jefferson would not do it. Because again, this gets back to your question about whether this was a second war of independence. The American idea, again, was a man is obliged to the country to which he has allegiance, and you could change your allegiance. If a Briton wanted to be an American merchant marine sailor, as far as American ideologues like Jefferson and Madison were concerned, as far as the American Revolution's underlying principles went, he could do that. But again, the British, like the Germans, like the Swiss, like the Russians, like the Turks, like the Japanese, like the Chinese, nobody else at the time thought it was possible to forswear your hmm. native obligations to your country. And so the Americans thought that impressing people did amount to saying that Americans weren't really American, they were British. Right. It's true. But from the British point of view, what else could they do? I've never thought of the immigration aspect of the creation of the United States of America as being such a threat to other nations in that regard. It's a fascinating thing. Those same hawks that I mentioned before, Calhoun, Henry Clay in Congress, they were shouting for a move against the British. One aspect of the 1812 conflict that was fascinating to me, I never really understood, was the opportunity of taking Canada. <laughs> I didn't understand that that was actually one of those things that they were saying, hey, this is a chance to kick the Brits off the continent. Right. The campaign against Canada, a ramshackle military effort, great equipped British Native Americans allied with the British, led by Tecumseh. It does not go well for the Americans up north, and we nearly go broke doing it. How much did these military failures early in the war change Madison's view of federal responsibility? I mean, a guy who, like Jefferson, did not want to be focused federally is suddenly having to rethink this or else this war is going to be lost. I was casting aspersion on these people in regard to their military policy a few minutes ago. And maybe the highlight of the fanciful nature of their thinking about war came in a letter that Jefferson wrote soon after the declaration. He, he said to a friend that he thought the war with the British would be a matter of just a couple of weeks marching. So the idea he had was America had declared war. It would take weeks and weeks and weeks for it to get across the Atlantic for the British to learn about it. And then for them to make any response would take many weeks more. During that time, the United States could launch a force into Canada and conquer 
Upper and Lower Canada. They could take Montreal and Quebec. And then the idea was, at least the, the American idea was, that having done that, they could say to the British, all right, we'll give them back to you if you allow us to trade freely with Europe and stop mm -hmm. impressing our sailors. That, that was what they wanted. But that was never going to happen. The people Madison appointed to be his military secretaries. In those days, we had a Navy secretary and a war secretary mm -hmm. to be the head of the Navy and the head of the Army. They were totally unqualified. Mm. One of them, the fellow Paul Hain from South Carolina, he made his first Navy secretary, had a reputation for being drunk to the point of being incapacitated by noon every day. Wow, wow. And the other person, the guy he made his first war secretary, his qualifications for that position were that he had been a surgeon in the Continental Army during the Revolution. Hmm. But the Revolution ended in 1783. We're talking about a war that started in 1812. And the best qualified person Madison could come up with was a surgeon yeah. who had been in the Continental Army as a surgeon in a war that ended in 1783. So the generals were also, with the exceptions of William Henry Harrison and Andrew Jackson, Jackson stood out because he was competent. He was not any genius. Mm -hmm. But he was competent, and so he was successful. And the same went for Harrison. But in general, the generals were just as bad as those two military secretaries I've just described. And this was partly a result of the fact that these people thought, first you declare a war, and then you get ready for it. So the United States declared war, and we're totally unprepared. Right in the middle of their ineptitude, I mean, this real slapdash war that we're doing here, he has to run for re-election. I mean, this is the other factor of American politics that's a fascinating thing. In the middle of this really bad war that's going on, I assume was being covered by the press in a negative way, he suddenly has to run for re-election. And yet he can sort of walk into that office, can he, because of what you said before about there's no opposition, really. Well, there wasn't really running for election in those days. Hmm. James Madison never gave a speech saying, vote for me for president. Yeah. You know, that was not the way you were expected to behave if you were one of these people. But I'm struggling to decide whether I should say resistance to the point of treason in New England or there actually was treason in New England. There was enormous resistance to the War of 1812 in New England. Hmm. And in fact, if you were by the last couple of years of the War of 1812, if you were a British naval captain and you needed to provision your ship, you could do that in Martha's Vineyard or on Nantucket, or the New England states were essentially helping mm. the enemy. And people were growing their traditional crops in Connecticut and Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and then taking them up into Canada, a.k.a. trading with the British. Wow. And so Americans, farmers were provisioning the soldiers that were going to invade the United States and were wreaking havoc with American naval efforts and yeah. so on. So there was enormous resistance. People who write biographies generally end up being advocates for their subjects. It's understandable. You spend years with some fellow and, you, you know, you come to sympathize with him. And so you defend him. And this is an urge I have managed to resist, <laughs> but it's very common. And you think, well, what positive thing can you say about James Madison's performance as president during the War of 1812, which again, I think is by far the low point of his career. And what they'll say is, well, he did not use the military to put down domestic opposition. So it's true that when the legislature of Massachusetts called for what came to be known as the Hartford Convention to meet in Hartford in 1814, its idea was that representatives from each of the New England states would meet in Hartford to do what? To devise an opposition strategy. 
When these people met at Hartford, Madison did not prevent their meeting. He did not arrest people. He did not, you know, try people for trading with the British. He did not try Massachusetts governor for his just completely disloyal policy about his militia during the War of 1812 and so on. So there is that. He didn't do that. And actually, he was more or less, it turned out he was letting them hang themselves with their own rope because when the War of 1812 ended, spectacularly, there was a coincidence that the treaty was reached and Andrew Jackson won the Battle of New Orleans, unrelated facts. And news of both of these facts arrived on the East Coast more or less at the same time. So people had the impression that America had won the war. And then the Hartford Convention looked like traitors. Yeah. What it did was it, it wrecked the Federalist Party. It meant the Federalist Party was going to be down to a rump party in New England. That was what it was. And by the time, again, by the time James Monroe was reelected, there was not a single Federalist in the Electoral College. Yeah, that really is. The headlines of James Madison are all War of 1812 and Death of the Federalists. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on at this time in America. Right. But just backing up to what you were just about to say, when Madison is about to negotiate his way out of this kind of disastrous war, the U.S. Constitution, Old Ironside, scores its victory at sea. Big deal, that one. Out in Lake Erie, Perry and his ships win a Western victory against the British forces. Some incredible events happen in this period we don't talk enough about. Right. Death of Tecumseh, for one, and the permanent collapse of a unified Native American resistance would become a huge factor in the future at this time. And in fact, the, the American naval success on the Great Lakes meant that with the treaty ending the War of 1812, the boundary between the United States and Canada became the longest undefended border hmm. anywhere in the world ever. And right. it still is. It's the longest undefended border ever. Yeah, And this was part of the agreement that they reached in resolving the War of 1812, yes. Well, it all leads up to a fateful summer, 1814, when the British sail up the Chesapeake Bay, land their forces near Washington. What was the point of going to Washington and burning the Capitol? And you're, they're out in the middle of nowhere doing this. It was just a message, wasn't it? Well, actually, there had been an episode at the very beginning of the war when an American force crossed over into Canada and at York, which is now Toronto, somehow the local government buildings ended up burning down. Now, it seems that the American commanders on the spot did not tell their soldiers to burn these buildings down, but virtually everybody sees what the British did in 1814 in D.C. as being retribution for America burning down government buildings in what's now Toronto. Oh, fascinating. Okay. This is just a, a stopping point on a trip back to Baltimore, basically. Let's talk about Madison's actions in this case, and especially his wife, <laughs> Dolly, who does a very heroic thing. When it was clear that the British were going to march into Washington, Madison told his cabinet members where to meet him and when, and everybody was going to get out of town. And famously or infamously, when the British commander and his immediate subordinates got to the White House, they found a meal, a freshly cooked meal spread out on the table in the dining room in the White House. And so they sat down to eat it. As this was about to happen, there had come a warning. We have this from an enslaved man who belonged to the Madisons and lived in the White House. He wrote the first memoir of life in the White House, actually. And he recalled the time when man on horseback came up and warned that the British were coming. They had to clear the White House. And Mrs. Madison then, and I think four men, including this enslaved man, another enslaved man and two white men, took down the Gilbert Stuart 
full-length portrait of George Washington, which is actually taller than George Washington. The image is taller than the actual George Washington. They took it down. They took the frame off the wall. They took the frame apart. They rolled the picture up. Mrs. Madison's supposed to put it under her arm. She had the idea that if the British got it, they would take it back to London and it would be part of some victory parade. So she didn't want that to happen. So she is supposed to have rolled this thing up after the men she had instructed had taken it from the wall, put it under her arm, walked out to the front of the White House, hopped into a cart and told the driver to get her out of town. Meanwhile, her husband, the president, was riding around D.C., kind of trying to keep his finger in what was going on, but also trying not to be captured. And he and his cabinet members had agreed where they were going to meet a couple of days later. So we have several letters that the president and Mrs. Madison wrote back and forth in these days without ever receiving any on either side, I think. How does the War of 1812 in the end benefit James Madison or does it? I mean, we come out the winner, at least as we've told the history. Does James Madison? <laughs> well, before I answer that question, when John Quincy Adams was Secretary of State under Monroe, who, as I said before, was the competent war secretary in the Madison administration, a woman presented to him a an allegorical uh, painting that was supposed to depict the War of 1812. And it had the allegorical figure standing for America in a victorious position. In his famous diaries, which John Quincy Adams kept for like seven decades, Adams' description of this event where the woman had presented his picture to him was, you can tell he's angry and frustrated. He says, everybody knows this was not an American victory. We did not win the war. We didn't lose the war. And in fact, the, the treaty that John Quincy Adams had taken to lead in negotiating said that the result of the war would be a return to, quote unquote, the status quo antebellum. That meant things were going to go back to the way they had been before, right? We'll give back whatever territory of yours we're holding, you, you know. And what that meant was, since the Americans declared the war, and it was their idea that there'd be some positive outcome accruing to them that they had failed. Certainly they hadn't won. They didn't get what they counted on. But because while all this was going on, the British and their coalition were in the process of defeating Napoleon permanently, the impressment policy was going to cease to be enforced. So after the War of 1812, there were not British impressments of American sailors ever again. That was not a result of the performance of the American government. That was a result of military events in Europe over which the Americans had no yeah. control at all. It's the reminder that we're really the pawn in the superpower conflict that's gone on for decades and will continue to do so. Yeah, actually, of course, wars between France and Britain had gone on for more than decades. Mm -hmm. They've been going on for centuries and centuries. Yeah. We've mentioned the uh, death of the Federalist Party. I think one of the ironies at the end of Madison's career as a president is that he ends up supporting generally a Federalist policy as far as the National Bank is concerned, which, of course, was Alexander Hamilton's making. The Virginian John Randolph claims that he out Hamilton's Hamilton. Yes. But at the end of Madison's second term, it leads to some of the most productive yes. legislation of his entire presidency. I'm fascinated by this. I mean, you've got a creator, that era of time, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. These guys are baking the United States as they see fit to serve. And yet Madison anyway still sees the necessity of other policies and a change of direction politically. Well, one could, if he were cruel say that Madison had to recant his chief constitutional principles. I actually don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. 
Madison had said in The Federalist, which of course is that newspaper series he helped to write advocating ratification of the Constitution. He had said in The Federalist that some provisions of the Constitution would have to be liquidated by experience. Mm. So when it came to this question of the bank, chartering a new bank of the United States, the first time that was going to go up to Congress, Gallatin, Treasury Secretary, who, as I said before, was one of the three chief policy implementers or formulators, both in the Jefferson and in the Madison administration, had told President Madison there needed to be a new bank. And Madison told Gallatin, apparently, that he could go to Congress. Well, actually, Gallatin lived on Capitol Hill. At that time, people who were members of Congress lived in boarding houses because you wouldn't want to live in D.C. permanently. It was a swamp and nobody lived there. So what would you, what would you do most of your time? But anyway, Madison had told Gallatin that he could advocate chartering a new bank, but not to tell members of Congress that he, the president, favored this. On that basis, bill to charter a new bank failed. So the next time Gallatin floated this idea with Madison, Madison said, well, yes, you can tell people that I favor this. And as I said before, I think that the fact that there had been a Bank of the United States, it had existed with the acceptance of multiple presidents, multiple congresses, multiple parties, congressional majorities. They could have undone it. They hadn't undone it. For Madison, this amounted to liquidating the relevant provisions of the Constitution. Mm. And so that established a permanent interpretation of it. Nowadays, we think, well, or it tends to be the practice of people in the federal government that, well, it's not ever really clear what the Constitution means until we have a Supreme Court opinion on it. But there was going to be a Supreme Court opinion about this question, too. So I don't think that the charge of hypocrisy against Madison on this score is well Mm -hmm. placed. But it was one that some people made at the time. One theme that runs through this whole 24-year period is that the Republicans are winning all the electoral battles and eventually the war is over. But on the other hand, because the first two presidents were Federalists and all the federal judges they appointed were Federalists, the Supreme Court was controlled by the Federalists. What was going on during the Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe administrations was that Jefferson's cousin, Chief Justice John Marshall, the most important judge in American history, was writing into what we now call constitutional law, the principles of Hamiltonianism. So if you go to law school and study constitutional law, which you're required to do in every law school in America, you'll start with Marbury versus Madison, in which Chief Justice Marshall essentially read a long political lecture against Secretary Madison, meaning President Jefferson, and then claim the power of judicial review for the Supreme Court. And then comes McCulloch versus Maryland, in which the federal Supreme Court under Marshall laid out a Hamiltonian view of the powers of Congress, that essentially Congress could do whatever it thought was a good idea. That's what McCulloch versus Maryland amounts to. And it's not the case that Madison, by the end of his presidency, accepted that that was a good reading of the Constitution. In fact, he criticized McCulloch to numerous correspondents And he did not like the general habit of Chief Justice Marshall going beyond the facts of a particular case to lay out a principled idea about the way the federal government ought to be working in his opinions in particular cases. On the other hand, in my book, James Madison, The Making of America, I show that Madison went to the Philadelphia Convention intending to propose a national government. He didn't want a federal government. He wanted a national government. In other words, he wanted one in which the central government's power came first. 
that the central government had all the power that people in the central government could hope it would have. And while he lost in Philadelphia Convention, and while that was not the Constitution that was ratified, I do think from time to time in Madison's presidency, and then especially in his retirement years, you can see creeping up a kind of sympathy with the idea of more power in the federal government. It's not that he ever says, I think Marshall's behaving properly, but sometimes he'll be in correspondence with fellow Virginia critics of John Marshall and say things like, you know, over time, it seems likely that the quality of federal judges will improve and it'll be good if, and then he'll express some sympathetic uh, attitude toward the latest opinion of John Marshall. So he's not as clear a character in this regard as Jefferson. Jefferson's political principles, I don't think ever changed. His constitutional views did not change. And at the end of my book, The Jeffersonians, we have John Quincy Adams becoming president, and he gives an inaugural address in which he basically says, we're going to have a Hamiltonian program. And Jefferson's answer to that is to sketch out some resolutions for the Virginia General Assembly to adopt more or less threatening the federal government with resistance. He sends them to Madison for feedback, and Madison says, eh, why don't you keep that to yourself? And Jefferson does keep it to himself. So now we know about it. People in his own day didn't know about it. And that was where it left off. So I do think you're right to have a little bit of a twinge of Madison's a little more moderate on these questions. Jefferson was a hardline decentralist. He really believed in a policy of federalism, meaning that most authorities in the, in the state governments and then some few have been delegated. And that was not Madison's inclination, even though that he did think that's the kind of constitution that the people had actually adopted. I think it speaks well to his character that he would have that flexibility, considering the fact that he was you know, leading the effort at the U.S. Constitution. You would think otherwise. But anyway, he, the big takeaway, is, as so many of these president's stories are, is that it was a, a very complicated journey for someone who had a very clear vision at the beginning and a very changed one at the end. Kevin R. Goodsman is a professor of history at Western Connecticut State University. As an American constitutional scholar, he has published many things. Most recently, James Madison and the Making of America. Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America, and as we've mentioned many times in this interview, the Jeffersonians, the visionary presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, which is my takeaway today, is to now consider them a big chunk of history together. And without understanding each other's influence on each other's presidencies, you really don't get it. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate you coming on American History Yet. You're welcome. I was happy to be here. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies, to powerful political movements, to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.